Well, let me invite you to open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 17 this morning. We'll be looking at verses 10 through 15 as the Apostle Paul is now ministering in the uh, town of Berea. This is kind of a famous uh, passage as we recall the Berean Christians or the Berean believers are kind of well known and appropriately so. And uh, we'll be studying about Paul's ministry there in this city. Acts chapter 17, as you're uh, turning there, the Apostle Paul is on his second missionary journey. He's received the Macedonian call from Troas, so he goes across the sea, lands in Philippi, begins to preach the gospel there. Lydia gets miraculously saved. God opens her heart. She believes there's no synagogue there, so they meet them at the river where there's a, a, a woman's prayer meeting. Uh, he goes on and he casts out a demon from some fortune-telling young girl, and that gets him in trouble with, the, with her owner and also the leaders of the community. So they ended up uh, taking Paul and Silas and beating them severely with rods. They threw them in prison, uh, put their legs in shackles, stocks, and uh, they spend the night there. Around midnight, they began experiencing the joy of the Lord miraculously in their hearts. They began to sing praises to God in the darkness. And God responds by sending an earthquake that shakes the foundations of the prison. The bolts of their shackles fall out of the wall. The doors of their jails open wide up. The jailer thinks that they've escaped. He's about to commit suicide. And Paul yells out in the darkness, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. The jailer is overwhelmed with the circumstances. He may very well have heard them sing praises to God. So he Ask the most important question you could ever ask. What must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas give the most important answer you could ever give. And that is believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. You and your household. So the jailer believes. There's uh, Takes Paul and Silas to their home. Washes their wounds. Take them back to the jail the next morning. The city authorities come down. And uh, actually, they sent a report saying, release them and tell them to get out of town, basically. And Paul says, no, no, not going to do that. You come down here. You mistreated us. We're Roman citizens. You beat us when you shouldn't have. You didn't bring about a trial. That's unethical. It's wrong. It's criminal. You come down here and talk to us. And he used his uh, citizenship rights as a Roman citizen. And eventually, the leaders came down. They made their apologies, no doubt. Paul and Silas left town. They go to Thessalonica. They preach the gospel in Thessalonica. Again, uh, opposition to the gospel everywhere he goes. And it's there in Thessalonica. There's a great riot. The Jews go down to the city market. They stir up a great riot of people. And they go out to try to find Paul and Silas and probably beat them up, if not kill them again. They couldn't find them. They went to Jason's house and uh, they took Jason out. And uh, by the grace of God, he was not harmed, but they made him pledge that he would get rid of Paul and Silas, send them out of the city, or he would be criminally punished in some way, pay a fine or something. So Paul and Silas are now leaving Thessalonica on their way to Berea which is around 40 to 50 miles away. So we pick it up in Acts chapter 17, verse 10. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men, 
But when the Jews of Thessalonica found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also, they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. Now those who escorted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they left. And may God bless the reading of His Word. Well, the persecution which in the minds of the enemies of the Gospel wants to snuff out the Gospel is always backfires on them. Because in this case, the persecution merely just propelled the apostles to another area where the seed of the Gospel would be cast out into the wind and on the ground in another location. The persecution of the Gospel brings about the propagation of the Gospel. And so this is where Paul is. He has a heart to preach Christ regardless of the opposition, regardless of the enemies that rise up against him, he's not going to stay in one place and and endure unnecessary persecution or harm. So he flees. He moves from one spot to the next. But he's not discouraged. He doesn't go back to his home church in Antioch. He continues to push the boundaries, the frontiers of the gospel in new lands. He was a man with a heart for for foreign missions. He was a man who had a heart for the Gospel. He's a man who wanted more than anything else for those who have never heard of Jesus Christ to hear the message alone which could save them from their sins. And that was his heart. And the book of Acts is is bringing out the heart of Paul and laying it before us so that the Spirit of God might help part of that to invade our own spirit that we might see the importance and the glory and the blessing of being messengers of Jesus Christ to those around us who have not yet heard the Gospel. And may the Spirit of God help us to catch part of the Spirit and the love and the passion of the Apostle Paul to preach the Gospel to those who need to hear it. Notice in verse 10, The brethren, the church members at Thessalonica, send him away by night. You know, apparently the pledge that Jason had to commit to was a very serious one. And if Jason didn't comply, then there would be great persecution and harm done to Jason and his family and the other believers. And that's a signal for Paul that I don't want them to suffer for my sake. So I'm leaving. I'm moving on. And so he... And his entourage went to Berea, the next little town, again about 45 miles away. And they arrive, and here was a synagogue of the Jews, and they went into the synagogue and began uh, to preach Christ. In verse 11, we're told that uh, these uh, Jews in Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. An interesting description. They were more noble-minded. And Luke, who is writing this account, obviously means this as a great compliment to say that uh, they were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. This word for noble-mindedness, that word is used of noblemen. Uh, in Luke chapter 19, Luke has used it in other places to speak of kind of the upper crust of society. Those who are actually of noble birth and background, they're well born. In India, they would be like the Brahmin class. Uh, those who are wealthy and affluent and educated. And what Luke is saying of these Jews in the synagogue at Berea is that in their mind and heart, they were more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica. Their attitude mainly towards the Scriptures, what's in view here. Their attitude towards the Word of God was that they were more spiritually noble because of the way they viewed Scripture. That's basically the idea. And this noble-mindedness implies a willingness to learn and evaluate 
what they're being taught from Scripture with an open mind. For the Jews at Thessalonica were so entrenched in their biases, so entrenched in their traditions, that whenever Paul began to preach Christ to them, they rejected it. Tradition over truth. That's being peasant-minded. That's not being noble-minded. The noble-minded person esteems Scripture above all human opinion, traditions, whatever Scripture is authoritative in Scripture alone. So this, this description of them being more noble-minded indicates that they had a very high view of Scripture. They treasured the Word of God. They valued it highly. And, and obviously, this is what the Word of God would have all of us to embrace in terms of our attitude towards the Scriptures. Just using Psalm 119 in and of itself. In verse 103, How sweet are your words to my taste, yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. A high view of Scripture. Lord, your words in your, in your Bible are sweeter than honey to my soul. Psalm 119, verse 72. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Lord, I'll, I'll take all of my retirement. I'll take all the money that I have in the bank, whether it's a lot or not any. But no matter if I was a wealthy man and a millionaire, Lord, Your Word is better to me than all the money that I could have. It's a high view of Scripture. It's recognizing that the Word of God is the Word of God. It's a blessing. It is a treasure that far exceeds any kind of monetary value. How about Psalm 119, verse 105? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. They didn't look at the horoscope. They didn't read Ann Landers. They didn't get their wisdom from secular psychology. No, they went to the Word of God for guidance. It was a Scripture that was a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And in verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. The Word of God counsels me. A high view of Scripture noble-mindedness. So that in verse 97, Oh, how I love Your law. It is my meditation all the day. A high view of Scripture. That's a noble-minded believer. That's a, that's a believer that, that really sees Scripture for what it is. The inspired Word of God. Far better than any other book in all the universe. Far more valuable than Facebook. Far more valuable than Twitter and messages and anything you can get on your cell phone or on your computer. The Word of God is inspired by God. It is, it is a treasure entrusted to us. And when I believe that, and even more than that, when my actions are consistent with that, then we are noble-minded believers. That's what they were. Way back in the book of Nehemiah, they had lost the Scriptures for a good period of time. And finally, they found them in the temple. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people in, in Nehemiah chapter 8. For he was standing above all the people and he opened it and all the people stood up when the Scriptures were read. You know why in our the worship part or at least the singing Bible reading part of our opening time of worship we have you stand? It's to at least outward communicate that noble-mindedness Oh, you're going to read the Word of God. Let me stand up. Because you're reading God's Word. Let me, let me stand up when we read it. Now, we don't do it every time we read Scripture. But we do it at least once in the service. Because this is God's Word. 
And the Jews embrace that and they believe that. You see, for them, the Word of God was their authority for life and belief. Not man, not Paul. Their conscience, like Martin Luther, was bound to the, to the Word of God, not to the traditions of men or the creeds of men or the confessions of men. No, Scripture trumps all things, right? And they believe that. The teachings of, of the Scripture are the things that we long for. They are the things that teach us. They are the things we need to understand and embrace and live by. So Paul entered the synagogue. He began to teach these noble-minded Jews in Berea. And he had the first word, but in their minds, it was Scripture alone that had the last word. So what Paul taught them needed to be tested and examined. But they were noble-minded. They had that high view of Scripture. What a great encouragement for us today to imitate such a nobility. A nobility within the church. Those who carry a similar view of the Word of God. Well then, Luke goes on and describes really kind of how this noble-mindedness worked its way out in the, in the synagogue service. We see in verse 11... That that noble-minded high view of Scripture is uh, demonstrated in the fact that they received the Word with great eagerness. So they were eager learners. That's one of the marks of being a noble-minded. Eager learners. Notice the word great here. They had a great eagerness. And literally in the Greek, it means they have all eagerness. I mean, they came to church and man, they were wanting to hear Scripture. They were wanting to hear the Word of God. That's why they came. A great eagerness. I get to go to church today because the Word of God is going to be read and taught and I get to hear Scripture. And there was such a great anticipation and eagerness to hear the Word of God. They weren't falling asleep. You didn't hear Bibles falling on the floor. I mean, these people were coming and their ears were, were, were tuned to hear and listen to what God had to teach them that day. They were willing to hear Scripture properly reasoned and, and to evaluate it and to admit to the force of it when it differed from their previous convictions. They're willing to embrace what appeared to them to be the truth, even though it contradicted their former point of view. They were, they were eager listeners and learners so that they received the Word with great eagerness. Now, a lot of people are, have great eagerness. We experience great eagerness in other areas of our life. Some of us approach our meals with great eagerness. <laughs> I'm kind of in that camp most of the time. Some people will approach the Super Bowl tonight with great eagerness. Some will, will approach uh, political information with great eagerness. But these people, they had great eagerness for hearing the Word of God. You know, the prophets say, I tell you what, the prophet says, when the hand of God is being withdrawn from the people, he says, there comes a famine in the land. Not a famine from the lack of rain, but a famine, a dryness for hearing the Word of God. And that's one of the worst kinds of judgments there can be when people no longer want to hear what God says. That is not the case with these Berean believers. More than just believing... Uh, that the Scriptures were the inspired Word of God, which we all believe that. We should anyway. They wanted to learn. They wanted to learn what it had to say. I think a good example of an eager learner is Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus in Luke chapter 10. Love that story. Mary and Martha. 
Mary was seated at the Lord's feet just listening to His Word. Martha was the one who was carried the burden of all the preparations for the meal. She was doing exactly what a good hostess should do. But she began to complain to the Lord about her lazy, good-for-nothing sister sitting over there on the floor doing nothing while she has to do all the preparations by herself. And you would maybe think Jesus would turn to Mary and say, Mary, you're a woman. You know your place. Get up and help your sister. That's not what He said. He said, Martha, 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 you're worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary. For Mary has chosen the good part which will not be taken away from her. What was Jesus emphasizing? Have a high view of Scripture. Be noble-minded. Be willing to sacrifice for the sake of spending time in Scripture. Life, we all, man, we're all fighting this battle. Trying to dig out time to spend with God in the Word. The noble-minded find a way in the busyness of life and in the urgency of all the tyranny that's going on around us to elevate and spend time in the Word of God because they know that it's the Word of God. Well, how do you cultivate this uh, eagerness when you come to church as they went to synagogue or as we come to church on a Sunday morning? The brands didn't, uh, didn't come with great uh, eagerness because of, I don't think, because of some great Bible teacher that was going to visiting, coming into town, that was going to be there that Sunday morning because they didn't know Paul was going to be there. They didn't know who would be handed the scroll and would read it and then sit down and teach. Could be any number of men within the synagogue. But they came because the focus wasn't upon a man, but it was upon God and His Word. So when you come to church, what you should do in developing this eager spirit within your own heart is to pray for those who will teach. Pray for the Sunday school teachers. Pray for those who preach. Uh, pray that, that God would, would bless them through the ministry of the Word to our hearts. Go to bed early enough on Saturday night so that you're not sleepy and dozy on Sunday mornings. Prepare your heart by examining and confessing any known sin that you might have before you enter into the church building and worship of God. Then when the Scriptures are read, listen reverently. As if God Himself was speaking. Because when you read Scripture, God Himself is speaking, right? It's the inspired Word of God. Take every thought captive. Rein in those straying thoughts, even if the preacher or teacher is, is less than exciting or boring. But it's the Word of God that's being presented. So listen reverently and with respect. Some of you may benefit by taking notes. For some, taking notes is a distraction. But for others, it may help you to stay focused and concentrating on what's being said. But you come with an eagerness. You pray for God to give you a listening ear and a focus upon the Word of God. So they were eager learners. That's one of the marks of their noble-mindedness. Their high view of Scripture. When they came to church, they were eager to listen and to learn. Secondly, they're also careful students. Notice in verse 11, they were examining the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They were careful students of the Word. They examined the Scriptures to see if what Paul was telling them was actually what the Bible said. And this is a great uh, uh, pattern for all churches. To not hear the preacher, hear the teacher, and suddenly accept it because some man said it. 
No, you need to examine it. You need to make sure that what we're teaching is in line with the Word of God. And, and they took that upon themselves as their own responsibility. Paul was a guest visiting speaker. He was a rabbi. Yeah, he has authority. So he's a Torah teacher. But they weren't going to take his word for it. They were going to go back to the Word of God and they were going to study it on their own to listen to what He said, take the words that He taught, the doctrines that He was teaching, no doubt about Jesus Christ, about their Messiah being crucified and then raised on the third day, about Him fulfilling Isaiah 53, the great suffering servant that He suffered for our sins on the cross. And all the other passages of Scripture that he probably referred to. And they would go back and they would, they would read the text and remember again what he said and examine it to see if it lined up with the Word of God. This took effort. This took sacrifice. Because most of the Jews, they did not have their own individual copies of the Bible like we do today. The Scriptures back then were, the Old Testament was in long scrolls and those were normally kept in a little ark, as they called it, within the synagogue. A little a compartment where all the scrolls would be slid in there and be kept safe. And then on the Sabbath, they would bring them out and they would unroll them and read them. Most people didn't have copies of their own Bible like we do. So for them to examine the Scriptures meant they had to spend a lot of extra time at the synagogue. They had to walk there. And in fact, that they did it daily meant that some of them probably didn't go to work that day so they could go spend time in the Word of God. It was that kind of effort and sacrifice that they put forward. These scrolls were very expensive to make. They were painstakingly copied by a scribe, so you'd have to pay people to do that. So if you weren't affluent, then you probably didn't even own one of the scrolls. So the Jews had to keep coming back to the synagogue where the scrolls were kept to study them, to search them, to evaluate them. And no doubt they discussed and debated among themselves the meaning. Did you hear what that Paul said? Is it, well, you know, it does seem like this text of Scripture is saying what he was telling us. And they evaluated him. The word for examine here in verse 11 is actually used by Luke and several other places in the book of Acts for a, a judicial investigation. Someone's being brought up before the Sanhedrin or a court of law, and they're being, he's being examined. And that kind of an examination by a judge or a ruling body should be impartial and done with great care. And that's probably the suggestion here. That they were very impartial, but they examined the Scriptures to make sure that what Paul was teaching lined up with the Word of God. Now obviously the Old Testament scrolls were full of Jesus Christ. Jesus... um, said in John 5, you search to the Jews. He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is these that testify about Me. So as Paul was teaching and preaching Christ to them, they no doubt would go back to the Word of God and begin to examine it to see if in fact it was the case. They didn't just take, again, Paul's Word. They had to be convinced themselves from Scripture. They probably listened to their local rabbis, but they were great authorities, but they weren't the authority. The authority is always Scripture. Not what men say, not what traditions teach, but it's always the Word of God. So they set the teachings of Paul to the fire as one would put gold in the fires of a smelting pot, and they found that what Paul was teaching them came forth as pure gold. It came forth as gospel truth, 100% in line with the Old Testament. You know, it's a good indication that the Spirit of God is moving in one's life when they make diligent use of the means of grace and the Word of God. And uh, those people, if they're unbelievers, uh, many times the Lord will lead them to saving faith. Notice the frequency in their study again in verse 11. They examine the Scriptures daily. 
daily dialogue. Not just weekly, not just on the Sabbath day when it was convenient to go back to the synagogue. But they did it every day. This was something they were greatly interested in. They were highly motivated to do. So it was a daily dialogue. They examined the Scriptures daily. They went back to the synagogue daily. And this is really the the best discipline for you and me is to spend time in the Scriptures daily. And as difficult as that is for some of us with very, very busy schedules, that is the best discipline if you want to maximize the blessings of God in your life. And that's why in the Psalter, Psalm 1 begins that way. How blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the in the path of sinners or sit in the seat of scoffers but his delight his delight is in the law of the lord and in his law he meditates day and night and what are the blessings that come from that well he'll be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in its season its leaf does not wither And in whatever He does, He prospers. If you want to maximize God's grace and blessings in your life, spend time in the Scriptures daily. George Mueller read the Bible hundreds of times from cover to cover. Over 200 times. And no doubt... That much saturation of his thinking in the Word of God made him a man of faith who did so many incredible things. A man of prayer, a man of faith who saw God intervene almost miraculously in many ways in providing for the children of the orphanages that he oversaw. Those who regularly immerse themselves in the Word will continue to grow in grace over time as the Word of God washes over our thoughts, cleaning us, challenging us, encouraging us, convicting us. And as the Holy Spirit provides grace, we are transformed by the truth of the Word of God. So how did these noble-minded Jews who received the Word of God with great eagerness and examined the Scriptures daily to see whether these things were so, how did they respond? Well, verse 12, Therefore many, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. There may have been more women, that's why they're mentioned first. But there were prominent Greek women and men were drawn to the synagogue, heard the gospel, believed the gospel of Jesus Christ. Many Jews believed, and this is really the quantitative proof that the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians. By the grace of God, God had given them a high view of Scripture and they were willing to subject their previous understandings of the faith in light of the new teaching, the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And they're willing to bow to the authority of Scripture. They're more noble-minded. And that's seen quantitatively in the fact that many came to faith. Remember back in Thessalonica, only some did. But in Berea, many did. Because they, in general, had a high view of Scripture. These many Greeks, uh, I love the way Luke sometimes writes he, when he says that, that uh, in verse 12 that uh, many of the Jews believed along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. In the Greek it just says, not a few Greek women and men came to faith also. Not a few. And sometimes Luke likes to put it that way to to bring emphasis that it was another large crowd of Greeks that came to faith. Not a few. A bunch of them. So a bunch of Jews and a bunch of Greeks came to faith under the ministry of the Apostle Paul. This is a wonderful revival going on at Berea. But obviously, wherever the sweetness of Christ is preached, the enemies will soon gather. And so in verse 13 and 14, the Jews of Thessalonica 
found out that the Word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea also. And they came there as well, agitating and stirring up the crowds. And then immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea, and Silas and Timothy remained there. So now the Jews of Thessalonica, Paul and Silas have been in Berea for weeks, maybe a few months. And they catch word that Paul is now in Berea teaching the Jews, and many of them are converting. So they come down with a horde, and they stir up the people of Berea, the unbelievers of Berea, to the point where now they need to get Paul out of town quickly for his own safety. Similar to what happened uh, in his first missionary journey when the Jews of Antioch and Iconium tracked him down to Lystra and stoned him. After they put garlands around their neck, called he and Barnabas gods, then they stoned them. And these Jews are doing the very same thing here on the second missionary journey. You know, some of the greatest enemies of the gospel in the first century were Jews. And it brought about the destruction of their own city and their temple in 70 AD as Christ prophesied in the Gospels. Notice when they came down, they agitated and stirred up the crowds. The word for agitate is, is, is used of the ground shaking in an earthquake. And that's what they did. They came down and started telling lies about Paul and Silas and the others began to foment dissent. Well, they're, they're, they're violating Moses. They're, they're, they're condemning Moses. They're disagreeing with the law. Whatever they were saying, they were shaking the ground trying to stir up this hostility. This is a word that's used for a, for a leaf that just quakes in the wind. If you've ever been to Colorado and seen the quaking aspen, those leaves in the wind, they just quiver. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to shake everybody up. And then they stir them up to disturb their minds, to make them turn against Paul and want to run him out of town. Stirring them up like the, like the paddles inside your washing machine when it's on and it's working and the water's just being agitated and stirred up and foaming and all this stuff. That's what they were doing at Berea. And they were successful. And they finally raised the temperature of the persecution to the degree that uh, they had to get Paul out of town. Now he left Silas and Timothy behind to continue to establish the church, to continue to minister to them. But since Paul was the main spokesman, the main teacher, all their hatred and anger was aimed at him, so they got him out of town and they're going to send him on to Athens. Paul didn't leave the ministry, he just went to the next mission field. And his spirit was kind of like that of David Livingston, the British doctor and pioneer missionary and explorer in Africa, who said, I am prepared to go anywhere as long as it's forward. I'm not going back. In other words, retreating, going back home. And that's the heart of the Apostle Paul. I'm willing to leave and to go anywhere as long as I continue to go forward in taking the Gospel to those who haven't heard it. So in conclusion, let me kind of wrap up why we, why we need more believers like these Berean believers. These noble-minded men and women that have a high view of Scripture. In closing, several reasons. The first one, of course, is that it honors God and it honors His Word. When we treasure Scripture, we actually practice what we believe and are not hypocrites. And of course, this will require some of us more sacrifice of time, but it is very well worth it. Sadly, many within the church today have a low view of Scripture Oh yes, they'll say it's inspired by God. I believe it's inspired by God, but they certainly don't act like it. They don't treat it as inspired by God. They may pick up and read their Bibles on Sundays, but they don't treasure it. They don't read it consistently. You know, the Bible is at the top of the bestseller list throughout the world. And yet it's the most neglected book in every home that has a copy. 
The desire to own a copy is not matched by a desire to know its message. It's like someone who buys a brand new computer or a brand new cell phone. They take it home. They're so proud of it. They take it out of the box. They look at it. They turn it on. They turn it off. And then they put it in the box. And they set it on the shelf. And they go about and live their life. Never making use of it. Never enjoying the benefits of it. And so is the lot of Scripture in many people's hands. This sad practice has led to a woeful ignorance of the Bible in many churches. According to one Barna report, 8 in 10 Americans, not Christians, 8 in 10 Americans in general, believe that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves is in the Bible. It ain't. 63% of professing Christians cannot name the four Gospels. 58% of professing Christians in America cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. 58% of professing Christians in America cannot tell you who preached the Sermon on the Mount. Oh, it's inspired by God. The first reason we need to become more like the Bereans is because it honors God. And it honors His Word when we actually believe it's inspired and treasure it in that way. Now, granted, we all have many, many busy things in our life. But I would just challenge you to fight to carve out some time in the Word regularly. Daily is always best. If it can't be daily, regularly. Because it's God's Word. The second reason why we need more Berean Christians is because it's dangerous not to be a Berean Christian. When we were flying over to Mumbai, sitting next to the Hindu woman, she had had some Christians come to her door and was engaging with her in a Bible study of sorts. And they were, um, were they Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon? Jehovah's Witnesses. And she has no discernment, thinking they were, you know, just good Christian people. And she was learning a little bit about the Bible with them, and we had to to warn her against that. It's dangerous when you're not a Berean Christian because you're more inclined to accept teachings without discernment and without examining them according to Scripture. Those less noble-minded believers are too easily led astray. They believe what they hear always on the internet or on radio or on TV preachers without any discernment at all. They're not grounded in the truth. And consequently, like in Ephesians 4, they are like children that are tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. And that is dangerous. That is not good. So we need to be in the Word with a desire to examine and test what we hear by the Word of God. And finally, it's, it's good to be a Berean Christian because it brings us closer to the sanctifying power of the Word of God. You know, you ought to read the Bible not only for blessings for today, but for grace, for yesterday, and hope for tomorrow. We need to read the Bible for blessings for today. I need daily blessings from God. I need to have my thought life renewed in Scripture because it's bombarded by the world and Satan and my flesh. I need my mind to be renewed from the pollution of what's all around me. I need my thoughts to be marinated in the mind of Christ so that I can have His wisdom, so I can know what to say yes to and what to say no to. I need to be reading the Bible daily for blessings for today so that I'll have the grace to deal with sin 
to be able to turn away from temptation, to have godly convictions and godly desires, to be able to place freshly in my hands every day the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, to help me withstand the fiery attacks of Satan. I need to be reading the Word of God every day to help me for today, to meet today's battles, today's struggles, today's discouragements. When we were in Vigiawada after the church service, we walked around the corner to a very, very poor area. And one of the church members from the lowest class uh, in India was in just a, a very, in, in our opinion, a, a run-down hut of a house. Just a couple of rooms in it, concrete floor, dirt on the floor. And she was in the second room, bedridden, had contracted some virus, and she was paralyzed. She couldn't move her body. And we were brought into her room so that we might pray for her. So what do you do when you're a believer? And you run into these kinds of great challenges in your life. What hope can you get for today? What strength, what encouragement can you get when your heart is breaking? When you're facing issues that normally would so tear you apart, where do you get your strength from? And God has given us the Word of God to help us, to heal us, to give us encouragement. We need to be reading Scripture regularly for the the trials of today. But we also need to remember to read the Bible to deal with the issues of yesterday. You know, oftentimes our past haunts us because of our sins that we've committed, because of foolish decisions and the consequences that we have to live with today. Sometimes because of the words we said or the actions we committed. And we all have these skeletons in our closet that have a way to wake us up in the middle of the night. To rob us of our sleep as the memories come back of the things that we have done or not done in the past. And we need to be reading the Bible regularly to give us the grace of God to deal with those kinds of issues from our past. To be refreshed again that there is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. To know again that all of my guilt and all of the, of the wrath of God that I deserve for my sins have been paid in full by Christ. That I have been washed. That that guilt has been taken away from me. I need to be reading the Scriptures to find peace in my heart from those troubling issues of the past that sometimes disturb my peace. We need to be reading the Scriptures to remind us that those things in the past were under the control of a sovereign God who is infinitely wise and infinitely good. And though it doesn't excuse me for my sin or for what I did, yet God can bring ash, bring beauty out of the ashes. That God can, can restore the years that the locusts have eaten. So I need to be reading the Scriptures today so I can have peace in my heart with yesterday. And we also need to be reading the Scriptures today to give us hope as we face tomorrow. For many of us, tomorrow is frightful. There can be intense fear and anxiety over what might happen in the future. Maybe I'm on the verge of losing my job. What then? Maybe I'm going to get the test results back. And what will it say about my health? Important decisions need to be made and I don't know which way to go. We have this, this unknown future lying ahead of us with, with much darkness and much confusion. And I need to be reading the Scriptures today to find the peace of God that I can quiet my fears and my anxieties. To have the calming and comforting truths of Scripture. The balm of Gilead flowing into my soul. 
so that Christ might stand up in my boat in the midst of the storm, away not knowing what the future has, but He rises up and says, hush and be still. And all of those fears and all those anxieties just bow down before the Master in humble submission because His will will be done. He's in control. And His promises to me are sure. So don't be, don't be worried about your life or food or drink or clothing. Is not life more than these things? And God will provide for you far more than He provides for the birds of the air and the lilies of the fields. He cares and clothes them. How much more will He care for you? So don't worry. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Don't worry about tomorrow. And I need to be reading the Scriptures today for grace to handle today's challenges. Mercy to look back upon the past to find and see God's sovereign control and purpose which I may not fully understand. And just grace that I might have hope for tomorrow when I'm not sure of the way to go forward. This is some of the benefits that a Berean Christian can have, which other believers do not have. But this is why we need to be Bereans, that we might be brought closer to the sanctifying power of the Word of God. Oh God, make us Berean believers. The great cure, of course, for the curse of sin that we all wrestle with is the cross of Jesus Christ. And this is our great blessing as we conclude this service is to draw our thoughts back to the Word of God, back to the cross of Christ, back to the great hope that we have in Jesus. He's the cure for our past. He's the cure for our present. He's the cure for our future. All that we need, we find in Jesus Christ. All of my sins, He has borne. He has suffered. He has paid the price. So that any sinner who recognizes their sin before a holy God and knows that one day they will stand before the righteous judge, but they want forgiveness, can come to Christ and receive the free gift of everlasting life.